Hello and welcome to the Warrior Nation podcast, a deep dive into war, security, foreign policy and militarism in modern Britain, produced and edited by Forces Watch. Forces Watch is a UK organisation dedicated to providing critical information on militarism and military ethics and human rights concerns. I'm Joe Glenton. I'm a former soldier, Afghanistan veteran, author, defence journalist and now Forces Watch comms officer. I'm Rihanna Louise. I work on education and outreach at Forces Watch. I've authored numerous reports and resources and conducted extensive research into military recruitment, militarism and anti-militarism in the UK. Yesterday, the Court of Appeal ruled that UK arms sales to Saudi Arabia are unlawful due to evidence of their use in war crimes in Yemen. This was a triumph for Campaign Against Arms Trade and Amnesty International, who have advocated for this for some time. This ruling means that the UK government must reconsider its arms sales to Saudi Arabia, must make necessary assessments about past episodes of concern, and must estimate future risks in light of them. No new licences of arms or military equipment can be granted to Saudi Arabia for possible use in the Yemen conflict until the Secretary of State has retaken its decisions based on the legal basis laid out by the court, or has applied for a stay of execution and has had this stay granted by the court. This was a groundbreaking ruling and has exposed the illegality endemic to the global arms trade, as well as the UK's complicity in worsening and fueling violent conflict around the world. We recently spoke with Andrew Feinstein, an expert in the global arms trade. He was elected an ANC MP in South Africa in 1994, and some years later resigned in protest at the government's refusal to properly investigate a corrupt multi-million dollar arms deal. He's the author of The Shadow World Inside the Global Arms Trade, and numerous other books about the global sale of arms. He's also the founding director of Corruption Watch, an NGO that examines corruption and its impacts on democracy and development. So if you're interested in the global sale of arms and Britain's role in it, and Andrew's incredible journey of exposing corruption and critiquing this very powerful, very dangerous industry, please keep listening. So um, thank you for coming on, Andrew. Really nice to have you down. Um, can you just talk to us a little bit about how you, um, your your political history, how you got into politics, what, what made you want to be in politics and what you did? Um, sure. While you were uh, an MP, yeah. I suppose this isn't a conventional route into investigating the arms trade. I was brought up in apartheid South Africa, obviously as a privileged white middle class South African, um, but quite early on in my late teens, realised the ANC represented the aspirations of the majority of South Africans. So joined the ANC even when it was a banned organisation. Um, I'd had to leave the country in the mid-80s, was able to go back once the ANC was unbanned, and found myself as an ANC Member of Parliament after the first democratic elections in 1994. And the ranking ANC member on the Public Accounts Committee, the main financial oversight committee in Parliament, and a report came to our committee about a £6 billion arms deal um, in which about £300 million of bribes had been paid, £115 million by BAE Systems alone. And I actually knew nothing about the arms trade before then. And this deal had such a devastating effect on South Africa's democracy that I... Um, I wanted to find out more. Eventually, I was forced out of Parliament because um, 
I really wanted to investigate and research this arms deal. And then President Thabo Mbeki had had a different idea. Um, but after leaving Parliament, I wrote a book called After the Party about that deal, its impact on South Africa's democracy. Um, and while writing the book, I realized that perhaps what had happened in South Africa wasn't unique, that we weren't just inexperienced and naive, that this was happening all over the world, and that what had happened in South Africa was really the modus operandi of the big defense companies globally. Wow. Wow, okay. What was it particularly about the arms trade? Oh, I mean, there's lots of different ways in which governments work that, you know, damage human rights, And but what was it particularly about the arms trade that angered you, that made you want to do something about it? I suppose initially... It was the extent of corruption in the trade. So about 40% of all corruption in world trade takes place in the defense sector. And in the South African context, that's the only reason that deal was done. We didn't need the weapons. Most of them have barely been used today. And the socioeconomic opportunity cost of that is profound. So in the case of South Africa, um, the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard did a study that showed that the South African government's decision to spend this money on weapons at a time that it was claiming it had no money to provide antiretroviral medication to 6 million South Africans living with HIV or AIDS. Over a five-year period, that policy choice led to the avoidable deaths of 365,000 South Africans Mm -hmm. and led to about 35,000 babies a year being born HIV positive. So I suppose that socioeconomic impact also really touched me deeply and Mm. the way in which this trade undermines good governance, undermines the rule of law and undermines democracy in both the buying and selling countries. You know, I... um about a year ago, I was on the I was on the train and I sat next to some people, and they must have been on their way to some sort of arms fair or event because they were all in defence procurement, is what they said, and they were talking about being in defence procurement and how everybody knows each other, and they were like, you know, how much they love it and all of that. And one of them was talking about how he used to be in the military, now he's in defence. It was really interesting to overhear this conversation, and it just sort of made me think about how normalised that is and the way it's talked about as defence. When what you're saying suggests that 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 deal that took place really wasn't actually in the best interest in the defence of those citizens. I think it's a very good point. What you refer to is often known as the revolving door, mm. is this movement of people between, in no apparent order, the military, the defence companies, government, intelligence agencies, mm. and the intermediaries, the arms dealers or brokers or agents. So... I think for me, what the arms trade is, is in some ways it's, it's a lens through which to see the nature of our political and economic systems and how profoundly corrupted they've become by the, the role of money in politics. Mm. And, and this is the worst manifestation of it, both because so much of what happens happens behind national security imposed secrecy. So effectively in these deals, they can get away with what is common criminal conduct. And if anybody tries to investigate it, you're told, no, you can't. That's a matter of national security and can't be made public. And this is profoundly undermining our democracies and our systems of governance. The other consequence of this is that, of course, not only the impact of the weaponry that has all these human rights consequences has consequences of of death for so many people in so many parts of the world, 
but it's also that often the wrong equipment is bought. And it's bought not because it's what a country needs. For their defense or security. Exactly. Yeah. But it's actually bought because of the size of the bribes that are being by, right. offered by somebody who is selling a particular piece of equipment. So that the military itself can land up with the wrong equipment that has cost its government billions and billions mm. and has actually undermined defense and national security in that country, even in the most narrow conception of national security. And it's also had all sorts of other devastating impacts on mm -hmm. the society. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sure. I think it's a very um, interesting point, Mayweather. I think there's a perception here that a lot of people look at the arms trade and can be critical of it and understand that it's morally questionable, but essentially consider it it's it's bad, but it's legal, yeah. basically. Um, yeah. And what what you say speaks to the fact that it's actually actually corruption is endemic, is a central part yeah. of this trade. The illegality and these kind of backdoor bribing and stuff like that yeah. um, are absolutely central to the trade. Yeah, arms deals with certain countries mm -hmm. and many countries of the Middle East, many countries that are under dictatorship, um, are so profoundly corrupt that I would argue, you know, arms deals with Saudi Arabia, for instance, the United Arab Emirates, to, to name two. I don't believe an arms deal has ever been done with those countries where bribes haven't been paid. Mm -hmm. And they're being paid with the knowledge and the acceptance, not just of the companies who receive massive public subsidies, like a BAE Systems or a Rolls-Royce in the United Kingdom, but also of the Ministry of Defense, of the mm -hmm. highest echelons yeah. mm -hmm. of government. So that governments involved in these deals are participating in criminal conduct that disadvantages their own citizens, and this is acceptable. But don't you think, I mean, the understanding, like you were saying, Joe, of what the arms trade is, I think a lot of people think of arms dealers and they think what was that program on BBC like a, a year or two ago and there was an arms dealer and he was the, the night manager oh, the night manager yeah. it was brilliant I yeah. loved it so much <laughs> I, I really loved it but one issue that I had with it is that it presented this guy as a criminal who was like outside of government somehow oh, he was yeah, outside and that's not the, yeah exactly and that's actually not the like actually it's all taking place under this kind of legitimised yes. defence Absolutely. And you know, the vast majority of arms dealers, the intermediaries who are crucial to these deals because they facilitate the corruption and the laundering of the money, which takes place on an organized criminal scale. These people, we think of them, oh, you know, are they these slightly dodgy guys rushing around conflicts in Africa, the Middle East or whatever? The vast majority of them are nothing like that. Mm -hmm. The vast majority of them are unbelievably wealthy individuals who are pillars of the political and economic establishment in their countries. And that applies particularly in the United Kingdom. So, you know, at some of our most exalted universities in this country, we have various academic schools who are named after arms dealers who've contributed tens of millions towards those schools because what they all do is rather than be called arms dealers, they describe themselves as philanthropists and they give huge amounts of this ill-gotten money to academic institutions, to charities, etc. But the bottom line is that you're absolutely right. This is a fundamental part of our societal structures and of our economic and political structures. Yeah. I have to say, just it's a minor point, but the one that's particularly stuck in my craw as I've become aware of it is the, the involvement of big arms firms in things like, in lots of veterans' charities, 
And in Remembrance Day, whereas Remembrance Day is effectively sponsored by BAE or has been, and that particularly is, um, strikes a nerve for me. But it's, it's just standard now. I mean, mm. their names are all over those kind of events. Well, I suppose, I, you know, the involvement of arms companies dubiously in, in wars and with the military has been mm. going on for yeah. a long time, and people maybe don't, you know, like arming all sides of different conflicts and... Um, I mean, I think what they're incredibly good at, again, you're both exactly right. Uh, first of all, the, the sort of the modern template of the modern arms dealer was a guy called Basil Zarov. Mm-hmm. Um, in the 1890s, he started in the business. And his great thing was that he would sell to both sides in any conflict to keep the conflict going. He was a confidant of Lloyd George's, mm-hmm. and he was actually one of Lloyd George's emissaries to the Paris Peace Talks, where according to all accounts that we've been able to come across, he saw his main role as being to ensure that peace didn't happen for that very reason, that they needed to keep conflicts going. Um, so, And I think that what we've seen, especially in the wake of the tragedy of, of 9-11, is we've seen a sort of a, an approach to security and defense matters where you can't question anything. Yeah. And as a consequence, the defense companies that are meeting these needs shouldn't be questioned either. And our government and these companies and their unholy relationships Relationships should just be accepted because they're defending us. Mm-hmm. But there's just one example that really brings home this point I want to make. And that is after the tragedy of 9-11, um, Lockheed Martin, the biggest defense company in the world, was given an $11 billion contract by the United States government to fill what had been an obvious gap in America's security that, that was the, the 9-11 accentuated. And that was the Coast Guard, the American Coast Guard. Mm -hmm. So Lockheed Martin got this $11 billion contract to basically re-equip and modernize the American Coast Guard. Ten years into this, this contract, they had produced one vessel. And when the vessel was launched, its hull cracked. And after 10 years, when the contract was reviewed, the Coast Guard was no better off than it had been on 9-11, and the contract for Lockheed Martin was extended. Mm-hmm. There you go. Gosh. <laughs> yeah, there must, it, it surprised me. Again, it's a modern thing, but I, I recall um, there was a census about 10 years ago, you know, the census they do every now and then, and it emerged that Lockheed Martin had got the contract. Yeah, the census I in the UK, which everyone has to do, and many people spoiled it. But it, it surprises me sometimes where you see the names of armed firms pop up. <laughs> yeah. In areas where which you would never, <laughs> you'd expect. never expect. Yeah. Them Why to am be. I giving Lockheed Martin my address? Yeah. <laughs> what is that about? Um, and they, they have this kind of creep into all areas Absolutely. of your life. Don't and, they? and given their role in surveillance and other things, mm-hmm. yeah. the last thing you want is these companies running something as, as sensitive as, as the census. Exactly, yeah. Mm-hmm. That, I guess that's what you're talking about in terms of how arms firms have a role in hollowing out democracy and and things like that, mm-hmm. you know, and affecting our civil rights um, and so on. They they really do, um, and the w- the way that they do that is, you know, they're involved. First of all, they have very high security clearance. So these arms companies basically have access to the military bases around the country, to the Ministry of Defense, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, but they also are incredibly influential in policy making. Mm-hmm. So, and not just on the obvious things like the Defense Department, but foreign policy, mm-hmm. the Foreign Commonwealth Office, um, the Treasury, exactly what is spent on what, because they need to ensure that they get their slice for 
or for defense and national security, because that's how they get the contracts. And the other very important aspect of it in terms of the undermining of democracy is there's something of a sort of a, what I would call a vicious cycle of money, where when money is given to these companies to the tune of billions and billions by the state for contracts, so that's in addition to the general subsidies that they get for research and development, the export promotion that they receive from the state, which is massive. Um, but when they actually get the contracts and bribes are paid on these contracts, say to a Saudi Arabia or United Arab Emirates, there's what's called the feedback principle. So some of that bribe actually comes back to executives in those companies. Those companies obviously are big contributors to political parties and sometimes to individual politicians. Mm. So while it's more extreme the way this happens in the United States of America, it does happen, perhaps not to the same extent, but it certainly does happen in the United Kingdom as well. And this is really another dimension of the hollowing out of our democracy. Sure. Are these all things that you look at at Corruption Watch? What Could you tell us a bit more about what Corruption Watch does? Absolutely. So we're a tiny organisation. We have three full-time people, and we're very fortunate to have lots and lots of volunteers. A bit similar to Force Watch. Well, we don't have lots and lots of volunteers, but a bit, a bit similar in size to Forces Watch. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and we started off with a focus exclusively on the corruption side of the arms trade. We sometimes do bits and pieces outside of the arms trade. Um, but more and more our workers become not only investigating the corruption in these deals, but also the human rights consequences of the deals. Mm -hmm. So when we do, when we're looking at deals with Saudi Arabia, we look not only at uh, the tens of millions of pounds that have been paid in corruption, because ultimately that's coming out of our tax dollars. We're also looking at the fact that a lot of this weaponry is going to be used in places like Syria and Yemen and others, mm. where uh, there have been massive violations of international humanitarian law and also the committing of war crimes. And the provision of weaponry and the continued provision of weaponry to do that, I believe, makes us complicit in those crimes. So our work has broadened out a bit, and we're actually in a couple of months' time planning to rebrand as Shadow World Investigations. Oh, good. Oh, I like to, that. <laughs> That's a to, to reflect that we do more than corruption. But corruption remains very much at the heart of what we do because we want to show how basic laws are being broken by this industry in addition to the consequences of the weaponry itself. Sure. And so Shadow World, for that new name, must mm -hmm. be based on your book, Shadow World. <laughs> and documentary. Yeah. Yeah, so the the book which first came out at the end of 2011, um, there have been, I think, about nine or ten editions of it, um, has obviously, it acts as something of a calling card for us because I discovered um, when I wrote my first book, After the Party, that there hadn't been a book on the global arms trade since Anthony Sampson wrote a book called The Arms Bazaar that was first published in 1979. Wow. And the reason for that, I suppose, is that the people involved in the trade are quite litigious. There are obviously lots of, of government entities involved, and it's very difficult to access the information. So both the book and the film form a large part of the outreach work that we do um, in Corruption Watch. So we spend an enormous amount of time traveling around not just the UK, but all over the world, showing the film, doing talks, engaging with campaigners, activists, 
even people in the city of London, we engage with everybody, people in the military, to try and give them perhaps a slightly different sense of an industry that they've had a particular perception of over the years. Mm. You said that um, people in the arms com- in the arms trade are particularly litigious. Have has that been an issue for you? Have you been facing? Um, problems over the years. So whenever we do a presentation, the first question we always get asked or when the film gets screened is, oh my goodness, aren't your lives in danger? And of course they're not. Um, I mean, I think in the 18 years I've been doing this work, I've been threatened once by an arms dealer um, and he was in no position to to act on the threat. The people whose lives are actually in danger are a lot of the whistleblowers and sources who provide us with information who take extraordinary risks. Um, And they're the really courageous ones. We're just the storytellers, really. Um, But the reality is that... um, in terms of the work that we do it's a matter of the difficulty is getting it out into the world and the one way that people can stop us doing that is we obviously like yourselves have very limited resources so they can threaten to sue us and we get constant threats which is why the Shadow World book unfortunately has almost 3,000 footnotes because literally if I suggest that an arms dealer went to the bathroom on a particular day at a particular time it's because we spoke to the two people who were urinating on either side of him mm-hmm. and we then note that in mm-hmm. in the footnotes the footnotes have all the evidentiary documents in them and that sort of thing mm-hmm. and it was the only way to get a book like this published um, because we can't afford to to be sued. We once had an instance where somebody tried to sue us and even though it was very questionable whether they had a case, they took it all the way to lodging it with the courts and we discovered that you basically need half a million pounds to defend yourself from a libel and defamation action in this country and we just don't have that sort of money. Um, in that instance, we were very fortunate that a funder put up the money but of course, as soon as the people realize that you can defend yourself, they lose interest in suing you. Sure. So that's that's a constant problem. And I suppose the flip side of that is that this trade operates with virtual impunity. So to give you legal impunity, I mean, so to give you just one example, when we first published the book, we and when I say we, it's myself and my researchers, because obviously a huge research team was, was behind the book. We discovered that there'd been 502 recorded violations of hum- of um, UN arms embargoes. Two of those had led to any illegal accountability. One of them led to a conviction of an arms dealer we interview in the book, and he was fined an amount of money that was a tiny fraction of the profits he'd made on the deal. Who were those those 502 violations? Who were those by? So those would have been by governments, by companies, including the big companies we've been speaking about, and or by individuals. And in in what space of time? So those would have been since you and Arms Embargo started, which, I mean, I'm open to correction here, but I think was around 1989, 1990. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Are there particular names which crop up again in terms of governments? Firms. Um, I mean, all of the usual suspects. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we have we have the world's biggest arms traders, and those are Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman, Boeing, BAE Systems, Rolls-Royce, and a few others. 
Um, in terms of governments, the United States of America produces 40% of the world's weaponry. Mm. So any sort of violations they're going to turn up in, Britain is one of the top five weapons producers in the world and obviously has a particularly close political relationship with the United States, particularly when it comes yeah. to military issues. Mm. Um, and, and so the United Kingdom's a big player there, but Germany, France, Israel, Russia, I mean, these are the, the names that constantly crop up. Sure. in this trade okay interesting um i just i wanted to so we talked a little bit about the revolving door between mm -hmm. the military and arms companies and one of the areas that we have noticed them working very much closely together is in education in yeah. the uk um so we at forces watch we monitor militarization and militarism mm -hmm. and in particular we look at education um and we are very aware of how arms companies are working together with the military to influence education, to deliver curriculum activities, yeah. um, even to sponsor. So since 2012, there are a number of um, colleges, schools or colleges that are considered by uh, part, at least part of the defence industry. So it could be wow. an arms company, it could be the military, it could be yeah. both. Wow. Um, and that's very much being encouraged uh, by the government. Uh, um, so, for example, there's one in South Wiltshire and it teaches um, science and engineering in the context of defence industries. And these colleges are for 14 to 19 year olds. Um, and the sponsors of that South Wiltshire one are Kinetic, is that how you pronounce Kinetic, it? Kinetic, yeah. Kinetic. And Shemring? Yeah, Shemring. Joe and I were discussing this this morning, I had no idea how to, how to pronounce these things. Yeah. Um, but then much more broadly, beside those ones yeah. that are particularly sponsored, um, there are STEM activities being delivered in schools, that's science, technology, engineering, and maths. Um, and it's often arms companies working together with the armed forces, so like BA Systems together with the RAF and the Royal Navy, to run the education, their education road show, yeah. um, which visits over 400 schools every year. Um, and then there's lots of other examples. They have a big bang fair, which arms companies run in conjunction with the military. It's sponsored by all three parts of the armed forces and, and arms companies. And one, so, I mean, there's so much to say about this, yeah. and it's an area that we're yeah. increasingly concerned about. Um, but one thing that we've noticed is that even though the influence is kind of, it, is almost always connected people seem to be so it, it seems to be much easier for people to separate it and to be critical of arms companies yeah. where they won't be critical of the military going in and influencing schools in particular ways and i just wondered whether we could talk about that for me it seems like rooted in a fundamental misunderstanding of how the defense industry works um absolutely i mean i think the sort of scale of what you're talking about is terrifying but from my perspective, where that fits into the work that we do is that it's absolutely essential for the military, for the government, and obviously for the companies, for what Lawrence Wilkerson, who was Chief of Staff to Colin Powell, both when he was um, Chair of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and when he was Secretary of State in the US, has said, um, they, they have to create what is effectively a military mindset. Yeah. They have to create, and, and he calls them the national security elite. So this is this whole sort of panoply of, of organizations and, and people we're talking about across these various institutions. They've got to create this mindset that conflicts are best resolved by military means rather than um, by negotiation. Um, and I mean, that's shown by the fact that the United States of America, 
employs more people to run one aircraft carrier than it has diplomats across the entire world. And, you know, the reality is that the United States and the United Kingdom very seldom go the diplomatic route. I mean, the nuclear deal with Iran is one of the rare, rare exceptions in modern times. And that, of course, has been set aside by Donald Trump. Um, so I think ensuring that people from a very young age in these societies understand what they would regard as the centrality of militarism mm. and everything that that encompasses, because it has, as you know better than I do, it has so many different elements to it, mm. be it the sort of the gender elements to it, the socioeconomic dimensions of it, etc., etc., that this has to be central in our society. Mm -hmm. And um, Joe and I were talking just before we started about a, a film called War School that we've started showing around the country, um, made by a guy called Mick Dixon, um, that shows the infiltration mm -hmm. of the military into schools, into universities. And what you're talking about, you know, in the film, you see footage of these young kids being taught how to fire weapons. Yeah. yeah. At a very young age, and you think to yourself, oh my goodness, this is the last yeah. thing they should be taught. They should be taught how at all costs we should try and avoid yeah. the use of military power and weaponry. But exactly the opposite is happening. And then, at a university level, with the influence on the curriculum, which has become profound, and the reality that the, the, some of these defense companies actually determine what is taught yeah, in engineering okay. faculties, in science faculties. And then you discover things like the fact that a university like Manchester University cooperated with the Israeli defense industry to produce certain substances that are used in certain types of high-grade weapons. And again, to say that these institutions are all funded by us. They're all subsidized by the British taxpayer. And do we want our schools and our places of education, universities, colleges, to be flooded by what is effectively the onslaught of militarism. Mm -hmm. And the thing is that sometimes when those, sometimes when arms companies or the military are providing activities for schools and for young people, yeah. it's, it's not, you know, it, it might be something like, oh, let's, you know, let's work together to plan how we build a windmill or let's do these team building exercises, sporting yeah. exercises. And it, it can feel quite removed from what the Absolutely. industry or, you know, whatever is actually doing. Um, and I think that it speaks to some sort of social legitimacy that they're trying to build of themselves where people aren't critical and they don't think about what they actually um, yeah. are, are yeah, doing. They, they see them as a force for good in our societies. Mm -hmm. And, you know, going back to where we started, I mean, growing up in apartheid South Africa, we had this in our schools. And, of course, I was at a whites-only government school um, in the late 1970s and early 80s. And we would have this constant presence of the military in our schools where really? we would do, yeah, yeah, we would do cadets once yeah, a week, so every Friday so, afternoon, yeah. which happens here. And, you know, a lot of people would see it as a lot of fun. It was much better than sitting in a classroom yeah. having to learn maths or something. Yeah. And you don't realize that what they're doing is they're preparing you to serve in the military that is maintaining the apartheid status quo. And in the case of the United Kingdom is ensuring that our foreign policy is driven by militarism and that our financial and economic policies are driven by the needs of our defense sector so that when the government announces that it's spending over 200 billion pounds on renewing Trident, most people in the society don't even think twice mm -hmm. about it. 
And that is the ultimate mm. consequence of this process that starts with what seem like really nice yeah. activities at a very young age. Yeah, I think I think another thing. I mean, it's slightly different when you're looking at universities, although they, you know, depending on the department, they might be facing quite significant pressures and funding issues. But in schools in the UK, one of the reasons we think why some of this is happening is that teachers and the, the the wider school itself are facing so much pressure and um, that any offer of, of resources they're going to take that up they're going to want that it's going to be you know all this 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 amazing resources offered to our kids and and the like military yeah. solutions are presented as the answer to yeah. problems that schools are facing yeah. um i just it's your role, isn't it I mean, yeah. we've seen it even with even with knife crime recently they started mm. talking about the knife crime of yeah. and the military, the military can go in and solve discipline it yeah and exactly. so on. it's just, quite it's yeah. quite extraordinary and you know unfortunately i think quite a lot of these military solutions are the sort of the flip side of the austerity politics that we've endured in this country for what seems like Absolutely. an endless period of time mm. where our schools are completely under-resourced. Our universities are under-resourced. Where, you know, in the area that I live in, in Holloway, which which is the centre of, of the knife crime epidemic at the moment, I mean, the number of public libraries and youth centres that have been closed down yeah. over the last sort of eight to ten years is absolutely terrifying. Yeah, it's really sad. So, yeah, and we really shouldn't sad. be surprised mm. that we have the sort of social consequences than we do. And then, exactly as you say, Joe, the solution oh, well, let's call in the military, yeah. which makes them even more indispensable. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, what would you say to teachers, to school leaders, uh, maybe teachers' unions, who could have a role mm. in raising concerns about BAE systems coming into their school or any other ways in which arms companies or wider defence are involved? What, what, what are think, some things they should think about? I think two things very quickly. I think that one needs to they, they they need to inform themselves about the realities of some of this thing um so we for instance we brought out another book in late 2017 called indefensible which is actually available to read for free online oh amazing um at a site called projectindefensible.org and it's set up in a very accessible way whereby it's it's um the subtitle of the book is seven myths that sustain the global arms trade and so it just deals with all of the questions do do these things make us safer um, do they actually contribute to economic growth to jobs etc etc and we use a few case studies and just give people a few facts to inform them of the reality of the situation and then to spread that message to talk about these issues in schools you know my my daughter is at an extraordinary state school in camden a comprehensive where they often they stop their lessons and they talk about things that are important in our society they talk about the cuts in funding to schools and what consequences they have this is an issue we should be talking about like that at schools is about what is the role of the military what is the legitimate role of the military in defense and security broadly understood and what is the role that it is playing in our society is it a good thing that you can go and play with guns at a fair 
on a Saturday afternoon in wherever you live. Is that a good thing, and why might it not be? I think those are the crucial things. And then there are some really good films available that are accessible, things like War School, the Shadow World film, um, that we're very happy to take to groups of teachers, to pupils, mm. um, to universities. That's a really powerful offer, if we could just repeat that, that you could teachers could have the Shadow World shown in, in the school. Absolutely. Um, um, and, and War School. School, really which is about how education really has films. been um, infiltrated by the military and it would be very easy to get hold of me on the Corruption Watch website mm-hmm. or at my email address which is andrewfeinstein at me.com um, and we, we've we been travelling around the UK for the last 16 months now showing the film all over the country and we're going to continue doing that as long as there are people who want to see the film Wonderful. Um, so we would really really like to do that but I think the most important thing is being informed and aware and talking about these mm. issues Thank you um, So we've talked a bit, I mean we've touched on universities as well but there's something that happened not that long ago the HSRC scandal did you hear about this? Um, so basically what happened is Cambridge University um, there were about 40 academics who became angry because they heard that Cambridge University had put in a bid for a Ministry of Defence project and this project was controversial for a lot of reasons but one of them was that it involved um, essentially trying to understand and influence human behaviour so it was kind of framed as psychological manipulation and people got very upset and frightened by that um, and so these academics wrote a public letter and they got quite significant media attention because they, they said um, that they objected to a public university involving staff in armed conflicts by acting as a supplier of contract research to the MOD. And we think this is really interesting because actually the reality is that's taking place in universities across the UK. Um, But perhaps this particular instance gained more attention and more controversy because it was humanities academics rather than um, science and engineering whatever which is the usual you know area and also you know could have been the nature of the actual research itself Um, but the other thing that it made us think about is recent instances where civilian workers have objected to the use of their labor for defense purposes so there's Microsoft and Google very similar, you know, to do with it. Well, those Google and Microsoft is the U- contracts with the US military. Yeah. Um, and then now here with the university. And we just, I mean, wonder whether this could be setting a pattern, whether this is something that will increasingly happen. Um, obviously, we hope that, that it will, that people will yeah. kind of, you know, be critical about what their labor is being used for. Um, but perhaps we could touch on that by talking about how significant those kind of broader civil society partnerships are for for arms companies, for defence. So when we're talking about academia, industry, you know, private companies. First, the partnerships are absolutely crucial. You know, there's this myth that the military is at the forefront of technological development. And that probably was true for a short period of time post Second World War, probably through the early to mid 60s. But I think since the sort of the tech revolution has taken place, the military has lagged very seriously behind. And one sees that most obviously in the sort of technology around drone warfare, um, where the images that are sent back to the people who have to give the pilot the instruction to shoot are really absolutely appalling. It's very well enunciated in a film called National Bird um, that I think is available online. Great film about drone warfare. Um, 
So the military is a bit behind the times technologically. So they're very dependent on universities for all sorts of technological developments. And they are very dependent on private companies, especially technology companies, but also some of the more sort of um, established and conventional companies. And I think that what happened at Cambridge, and, and I should say that on a lot of the campuses that we visited around the UK, there is a minority group of academics who are really uncomfortable with and unhappy about their university's complicity with the arms trade. And I think the most important thing that we can do is give solidarity to mm -hmm. those people and help them to try and build the number of people on their campuses who are opposed to this. So at Cambridge, for instance, there's a great organization called Demilitarize Cambridge who have been doing some incredible research driven both by students and academics. Um, we've done a number of screenings with them. We've also trained them in investigative methods, which is something else that we're very very happy to do um, at universities and to campaigning and activist groups. But I think they do tend to be in a minority. Mm -hmm. So I think the key here is to grow those groups and to help them get their message across. Mm -hmm. Because without the involvement of universities, the defense companies and the military are going to lag mm -hmm. behind technologically. And we don't want to see the very latest technology being used for military purposes. Yeah, it's quite frightening, well, isn't it? It's, it's terrifying. You know, as we think about sort of artificial intelligence yeah. and everything else, I mean, we're talking about weapons that will actually be able to make life and death decisions on their own without any human mm -hmm. intervention. Mm -hmm. And these are absolutely terrifying. So, so I think people need to be aware of these sorts of things and we need to build solidarity mm -hmm. across these communities who are often implicated into the defense industry. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the other area that is worth looking at, especially for universities, is the universities' investments, whether they're invested in defense companies and whether that is acceptable to the university population. But the key to all of this is building that awareness in yeah. the first instance. Yeah, absolutely, which is work that you're doing incredibly. Um, and yourselves. Oh, I mean, you. the sort of work that you expose about the ways in which the military have become insinuated into virtually every aspect of our lives is incredibly important because this militarism, and this is going to sound like a bit of an oxymoron, but it happens by stealth. Mm -hmm. And I think it's so important that there are organizations like your own who are revealing this stuff and trying to inform as many people as possible about it. And it's also why things like these podcasts are such a good idea, because these topics are just not discussed in the mainstream media. Yeah, I mean, this is partly the purpose of this podcast. We sort of, we're aware that there's a lot of debate going on in academic circles. There's a lot of really yeah. interesting books and information out there, but it's not always accessible to the broader public or put out in ways that are, you know, easily accessible. So it's part of what we wanted to do. Um, but how, how significant do you think that resistance from demilitarized university mm. groups and those Cambridge academics and the Google and Microsoft workers, yeah. how significant is that for the the whole military industrial? There's lots of words that you attach to that <laughs> complex, complex going forward. <laughs> no, I, th I think the word is well used. Eisenhower wasn't wrong. And I think it applies as much in the UK as it does in the US. Um, I, th I think the dependency is profound. I really do. And I think that's why it is so important that that these issues are called out. And also, Joe, the way in which you spoke about your own personal experience. You know, for someone like me, the closest I've been to conflict was in a cadet camp during my school years. And it was at that point I realized I was never going to serve in any military. Um, 
partly as a consequence of the fact that we were made to leopard crawl across a gravel road, which didn't really appeal <laughs> no. to me. No, <laughs> and and the fact that I had a, a profound lack of courage. Um, <laughs> That's clearly not true. Based on your entire life's work, that is clearly not true. Um, but it, it, it meant I studied endlessly to stay out of the apartheid military. But I think these sorts of, of personal narratives are incredibly important because when it's the people who are the end users of this equipment who are seeing just how warped the system is from the ultimate end point and how warped the mindset is that this is what is going to advance humanity, I think it just makes our role so crucial in ensuring that educational establishments and businesses understand this. And I think we are seeing with what we could loosely call the tech generation. I never quite know sort of who millennials are and who this no, one is. Like, I'm very confused. I'm technically we're, 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 we're a millennial and I'm 37. And, and I don't feel like I'm one of those. But okay, so I, I had the terrible experience yesterday <laughs> where I was filling in one of those surveys and I turned 55 a few weeks ago and I was on the very last age bracket, oh. 55 <laughs> to the end of my life. So I know I'm definitely not a millennial, but I do think that there is a generation emerging that are far more attuned to some of these issues and far more critical of them. And possibly that's a consequence of social media, which I think we need to use as effectively as possible. But I think it's also just a realization that perhaps the sort of hegemony of thinking that has been in place since the late 70s, the early 80s, because a lot of the nature of the militarism goes hand in glove with a form of economics that broadly is known as neoliberalism, that implies that greed is good, that if we all focus only on ourselves and our own self-interest, everything will be okay. I think the consensus around that is collapsing. Mm. So I, th I think there's an enormous opportunity to influence people who are working in places like Google, Apple, etc etc um and who are at university doing very interesting things because that's when they're being faced with a choice of do you want to be a part of the military industrial complex exactly. and all of its consequences mm. or not yeah it's, it's a very interesting point you make about um the generational issues zemials and millennials but i remember uh, when i came out of the army i was 28 and went to uni as an undergraduate and for most of the 18 to 21 year olds say um, who I was studying with, their formative political experience um, had been walking out this kind of school strike where they all walked out over the Iraq war. Um, so yeah, they, I think that maybe, that maybe contributes something to their uh, um, slight distrust maybe of the military, the background of Iraq, and also maybe the, the recruiting crisis the military is currently suffering. Yeah. Don't you think as well that, I mean, young people now are facing this enormous existential crisis that clearly can't be solved by the defence industry mm. and in which the defence industry is actually contributing. I think yep. it's true that the US yeah. military is the biggest contributor to um, fossil fuel emissions or yep. something like that. Yep. Um, and I, I think that might contribute as well as that perhaps young people may feel like their expertise is better served by being put to you know renewables and to kind of trying to find mm. solutions to the, the crises that the world is actually facing. I, th I think we do have a huge opportunity at the moment for exactly the reasons that both, both of you say. I think that the issue of climate change, and of course the, the defence industry is a massive contributor. Conflict and war are massive contributors um, to global warming. 
I remember an experience with BAE Systems where they told me just before the book was about to be published that they were developing a green bomb. Oh. So I said, what? Yeah. Because what do you mean? A bomb that'll kill people, but in a way that's stuff. friendly to the environment. Yeah, I've seen things like that. I've seen something about, um, it might have been the same thing, but there was something, and that it, when it landed, it would then plant se- like seeds, seeds or something. Or, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, it'll Ridiculous. leave the little bomblets, but also plant seeds. Yeah. The, by the way, on that one, when I contacted them a while later to find out what had happened to the green bomb, I was told, oh, no, it was much too expensive, so they can the idea. Right, sure. But I think the reality is that there are profound intersections between um, climate change and, and conflict generally. I think in addition to that, we're seeing the rise of politicians who are both of sort of an older generation in their 60s, or in the case of Bernie Sanders, even 70, and a younger generation, the new progressive Democrats um, in AFC, Congress. And these Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Who have very different views on these issues. They don't believe that their countries should be involved in conflicts all over the world, that we should be intervening everywhere we want to. They don't believe that we should be spending these amounts of money on the military, and they believe that climate change is a real issue. And, you know, there is a political future in which we could one day be talking about a President Sanders and a Prime Minister Corbyn. And the reality is that attitudes to foreign policy and the defense industry and the arms trade would look very, very so different, different under those sort of administrations. So I think we have a huge opportunity. But the other thing that strikes me, Joe, from what you said is, you know, the opposition to the Iraq war, that extraordinary march through central London, we shouldn't forget the power of that sort of what some people might define as old fashioned mm-hmm. campaigning and organizing, because I think it does give people an extraordinary sense of solidarity. Mm-hmm. And I think it's what's needed as much today on the issues that face us as it was on Iraq. I mean, if we look at the Yemen conflict, the United Kingdom has sold almost five billion pounds of weaponry to Saudi Arabia since the conflict started in March of 2015. And around 10,000 innocent civilians have been killed using British and American bombs from British and American planes. We are complicit in violations of international humanitarian law, human rights law, and in the committing of war crimes. And that is all being done by our government together with our defense companies. And we should never lose sight of the fact that the biggest arms dealers on the planet are not even the establishment figures we were talking about earlier or the people running around conflicts in Africa or the Middle East. It's our governments and our most senior political leaders. Mm. Yeah, that's so powerful, Andrew. Thank you. Mm. Um, um, we should probably wrap up now. We could carry on talking for a really long time. Um, but if people are interested in reading more about this, finding out more, um, obviously they should go to Corruption Watch's website. Um, do you know your handle on Twitter? Um, the best one is just to use my personal one, and okay. Andrew Feinstein, and, um, and it's linked to the Corruption Watch one, to right. the Shadow World Film um, Twitter handle, and likewise with Facebook. They're all linked to my personal accounts. Brilliant. Thank you. And so you were saying the copy, could we just say this again, the book that we've got here, Indefensible, um, that's available online, you said? It's available yeah. online on a website called one word, projectindefensible.org. 
Great. Okay, thank you. And obviously we've had an amazing invitation from you, Andrew, that if schools, um, colleges, universities were interested in, in maybe having you speak or, or having you send somebody to speak or having more resources that they could actually contact you personally. Um, what was your email address again? Absolutely. So they can contact me on, it's just my name as one word, Andrew Feinstein, A-N-D-R-E-W-F-E-I-N-S-T-E-I-N at me.com. Thank you so much. That's wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Warrior Nation. Stay tuned for our next episode.